3: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. Jay.
2: Hey, all. This is your amazing pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher, Dr. Santosh.
3: And we are back into the thick of things. And I believe last time we spoke, I promised you some of the secret history of the CDC.
2: Yes. Yeah. We we went into the founding and the purpose, uh, a a, a little bit of the founding, but definitely the purpose of the wonderful... um, epidemic intelligence service the EIS uh, which are kind of the you know the disease hunters of the CDC and uh, we we put together how you know this was a little bit kind of military philosophy attached with like epidemiology and that kind of thing but uh, yeah we didn't we didn't go back far all the way to like the the beginnings of the the parent company the the CDC
3: talked about the epidemic intelligence service as the spies of the cdc a uni- uniformed yeah. branch of the military no less the, no, the no, disease like... investigators that intelligence gatherers. Yes. so let's take a ride in the wayback machine and yeah. if you follow along with me to world war ii
2: mm, for no, scary time
3: minutes, this is before we have any epidemic intelligence gathering for military yes. personnel who were deployed to tropical, subtropical areas during World War II, number one health problem? Malaria. Bad air. And just like, to use a comic book analogy, just like S.H.I.E.L.D. started from a completely different service in World War II, so too did we have a different public institution responsible for controlling it. And that was the Office of Malaria Control in War Areas. It was a subtle Office.
2: name. Okay. <laughs> sure. Just <laughs> straight to the point. No nonsense. Yeah.
3: And that was a joint undertaking by the U.S. Public Health Service and state health departments. So initially they just detailed ways to reduce malaria infection, like Drugs, insecticides, bed nets—basically telling people: here is how you are at risk for malaria. Here's what to do about
2: it. We did have uh, some form of quinine at that time, Josh. I, like World War Two, around this time, antimicrobials were being like discovered, and you know, shortly in and around World War Two is when we'd see penicillin. I think though, uh, quinine was already identified from the Chinchona tree, as you taught us.
3: You're not wrong, but there's a complication.
2: Oh, okay.
3: See, the traditional treatment for malaria was in pretty short supply because in 1942, Japan had seized control of the cinchona trees in the Dutch East Indies and Asia, and Germany had seized control of all the reserves and manufacturing facilities in Amsterdam
2: oh yes yes and for those who don't know uh what is a tropical tree doing way up there (laughs) well after the chinchona tree was identified by colonists frankly uh, where we derive quinine from i believe groves were the seedlings were brought over and then planted and we had groves of them for medical purposes so oh no so they were in axis powers
3: yeah. So instead, the allies had to turn to a synthetic quinacrine known as atabrine. Like ataboy, uh, uh, but with <laughs> brine, like for pickles. Atabrine, you can do it.
2: <laughs> what a weird name. Um, okay. So alternate name, quinacrine. And that just helps me remember it because atabrine makes no goddamn sense.
3: Yeah. It wasn't an ideal solution because it did have a couple different side effects. Uh, Aside from the usual gastroenteritis, headaches and nausea, it could also turn your skin Simpson yellow and was often confused (laughs) and was often confused with jaundice.
2: Oh, okay, which would be very dangerous for a military, uh, a a GI, I guess, just, you know, trying to fight a war. And then all of a sudden, you know, it looks like his liver is failing. He can't be deployed.
3: Not to mention, if you look down in your Simpson yellow, I'd be concerned
2: yeah it'd probably freak me out um i hope people were told about the side effect before they were given this pill
3: no the simpsons hadn't even been invented yet
2: no <laughs> well they all right fine <laughs> so so instead so this was this was from a dye right like the the actual quinacrine was itself yellow You'd get the medicine, it would get into your bloodstream and into your tissues, but so would the dye. And if you were a fair-skinned, you know, young recruit, then you'd look yellow.
3: Since we didn't really have good treatments available due to wartime rationing, instead, the military, through this Office of War Control and Malaria, Mm -hmm. had to focus on propaganda, and nobody was listening. Hey, yeah, you know, wear a mask. Uh wash your hands. You know, all employees must wash hands. You know, the kind of signs people are like, yeah, that's just, you know, it's, it's part of the decoration. We're not supposed to do anything about it.
2: Sure. <laughs> so
3: yeah. instead a character was introduced to the GIs, bloodthirsty Anne. Sounds oh. intimidating, oh. right?
2: <laughs> okay, this is like uh I-, I mean it's apocryphal to say Rosie the Riveter, because evidently that poster wasn't really around uh, a ton but so this is kind of like one of those propaganda characters or uncle sam or one of those but thirsty ann
3: was okay. a little mosquito sipping on a, a martini glass of your blood uh, looked okay. very cute and i'm going to tell you right now you will be able to visualize exactly what she looks like despite the fact that you have never seen it before and here's why
2: okay uh-huh
3: It's the handiwork of young army captain Theodore Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss.
2: Oh, cool. Okay. Very cool.
3: (laughs) So Dr. Seuss got his start with medical propaganda. So here's the thing. Malaria had been known for a long time in the Southeast United States. Uh, In fact, Cases of it actually rose during the Great Depression. There was a little malaria epidemic, endemic, that only started to wane during the early 1940s as the country mobilized for war.
2: We don't think about malaria as being, you know, in the United States, but yes, if it's warm enough and the vector comes north, absolutely it can.
3: And most of it in the United States was in the South. Prior to World War II, the most important and effective control of malaria was, here's another trip to your history class, the Tennessee Valley Authority, where they would send teams of medical malariologists, sanitary <laughs> engineers, sure, and entomologists, <laughs> but they funded more research on the infection than any other institution in the country. However, in 1942, the U.S. Public Health Service established the Office of Malaria Control in war areas. And this is one of my favorite bar trivia facts. World War II was the first major conflict that the country engaged in where casualties caused by disease were less than casualties caused by combat.
2: Yeah, people don't know this, and it, it it freaks out a lot of people to learn. Is it, oh, you know, humans are the deadliest animal type of a thing? No, no. When, a lot of times when there were invading armies or uh, even in the times of uh, siege, right, where uh, a, an army would surround a city and lock it down and this kind of a thing, one of the weapons that you relied on was... Uh, uh, plague and malaria and all of these other pathogens coming in and actually wiping out a good amount of the force, right? If you got people crowded together, they could get things like typhus and plague. If they were in subtropical areas, they could catch vector borne diseases like malaria and they would do a bunch of the dirty work. Um, but yeah, I guess this time around, Uh, The humans did, uh, I guess, enough of the (laughs) work that they outpaced the mosquitoes, huh?
3: I always chose to view the more optimistic version that, hey, look, we're finally seeing less disease and war because we're controlling it better. But yeah, okay, if you want to be all sunshiny about it, probably because humans are just better at killing.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, you were trying to do the. I'm sorry.
3: Yeah. But sure, that's okay. fine.
2: Uh,
3: so the the Office of Malaria Control in War Areas focused on draining and destroying mosquito breeding sites, teaching okay. state and local health departments how to use these methods. And it was established in Atlanta rather than D.C. because the South was the area of the country with the most malaria transmission.
2: Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's a good place to put it. Uh, so. Okay, so we've gone from the uh, United States, what was it, Public Health Service, which was the kind of the predecessor uh, to all of this, to Office of Malaria Control, and then you know, kind of talking about uh, you know diseases in general, especially in wartime, uh, and then you know, now we have the headquarters where we think of the headquarters of the CDC.
3: Now, if you listen well- to our last episode, you know we got the CDC around the end of world war ii gotcha through the first couple years they were in existence epidemiologists there were in pretty short supply until they recruited alexander langmuir in 1949 which again we have talked about in the previous episode
2: yeah one of our uh, old heroes uh in the uh founding and building of you know, public health in the United States.
3: In the ensuing years, the CDC oversaw education, provided technical support, and was really pretty active in all 13 states where malaria was still endemic. They were so effective that by 1951, malaria had been eliminated from the United States.
2: That's that's a win. Um, anybody who is looking at the progress of malaria eradication right now around the world and how difficult it is. Josh, that was monumental.
3: Do you know the original name for the CDC on its founding?
2: Uh, no, no. I'm thinking, was it something like the United States Public Health Service, like the, the, the previous uh, iteration?
3: No, no. I mean, like the original name for the CDC was the Communicable Disease Center.
2: Oh, gotcha! (laughs) Sure, that makes it so not, instead of of Centers for Disease Control, like there was a CDC, but it was, okay, the acronym was different. Got it, got it, okay.
3: Even to this day, they are still very laser-focused on uh, malaria. Part of Langmuir's real triumph once he took over was his insistence, and as an infectious disease doctor, I'm sure you'll appreciate this, that cases of malaria be reported only on the basis of positive blood smears. So because of this rigorous case definition, reported cases or the true number of reported cases fell dramatically. Yeah, yeah, because,
2: so a lot of febrile illnesses, especially in children, can mimic malaria. Um, you know, high spiking fevers, um, they, they can, you know, fevers can come and go, and they can last like that. So even adenovirus, cytomegalovirus, EBV, like mono, can sometimes mimic in the short term uh, malaria. And of course, you have a host of other more serious diseases uh, that can mimic malaria. So that's really wonderful. It's, you know, you're, you're taking away a lot of supposed cases and you're focusing in on the, the true ones. Now, you can't always get smear positive malaria because there are some times where you're sick, but the parasitemia is too low to actually detect. Or, you know, you could have a bad technician. So I'm a little worried because I'm sure some cases were missed, which would be scary. But well, it would you also You know what they
3: say, Santosh?
2: You yeah. Can't,
3: oh, we, you can't always get what you swat. Yeah. But if you try sometimes, you just yeah. might find. You yeah. get where you bleed.
2: <laughs> da, da, da. There you go. Yeah, yeah. No, so, that's, but it's really wonderful. So now we actually have a case definition.
3: Here was here was the genius of Langmuir. Yeah. because those cases fell so dramatically, the CDC suddenly had a bunch of, for lack of a better word, free time on their hands, and he then suggested, okay. well, hey, maybe we could start investigating any kind of epidemic. <laughs> maybe with an maybe with an intelligence service. Now here's why here's why it's even sneakier. Field epidemiologists were in short supply, and originally there was competition from the National Institute of Health and its predecessor, the National Hygienic Laboratory. I kind of miss the old-timey names. Communicable disease yeah. center, National Hygienic Laboratory. <laughs>
2: Well, we hopefully all laboratories are hygienic, but yes,
3: the National Institute of Health, the Pepsi to the CDC's Coke, uh, also okay. had a <laughs> also had a research department for communicable disease, and they're like, we do with one department what your entire institution is focused on. Well, maybe
2: you need a bigger department, and would you like to come over here and hang with us?
3: Well. The field projects put on by the NIH were usually investigator-initiated. So they were some egghead doing a research study
2: oh, as, opposed than, to, yeah, yeah.
3: as opposed to requests or responses to infections needing assistance.
2: Got it. So instead of someone uh, reporting and saying, hey, there's a problem here, please send someone, this was, you know, a a scientist- Sitting there, say, "Hey, I think there's something over in, uh, you know, Louisville, Kentucky. Let's go look." And they may be right. They may not be right. And may, may be relevant or not. But it wasn't addressing what the people there were suffering from.
3: And then the coup de grace that Langmuir did to establish his department's, if not independence, at yeah. least importance. He created the Epidemic Aid Memorandum. That's right. A memo (laughs) helped the two institutions sort out the problems. On the day that a request for assistance with a disease problem was received, the institution that actually organized a response sent out a memorandum to, quote, all who need to know, unquote. So,
0: oh, Mm. someone's asking
3: you for help? Why don't you go ahead and tell everyone who's asking and what you can do. And it soon became rapidly evident that the CDC responded to most, if not all epidemic aid requests.
2: Cool. Okay. Gotcha. So basically telling everybody that like, Hey, great job, you know, scientifically investigating stuff, but we're actually helping people out.
3: You've heard the phrase, this could have been an email. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) He just he that that is a memorandum mic drop right there. It was brilliant.
3: There you have some of the secret history of the CDC's origins. Uh, began as malaria taking over, and now we know why it's in Atlanta because that's, yeah, <laughs> that's where the malaria was.
2: That's where the malaria was. And since that time, um, and we talked about this again in the last episode a little bit more, and uh, with the Epidemiology uh, Intelligence Society, or or the Epidemic and Intelligence, what am I saying? Society, Service, EIS, um, wonderful men and women um, who are actively helping to not just figure out what's going on in an esoteric sense, but really investigate where a disease is coming from and how to solve it. They really have done a lot of good and continue to do so. Um, I absolutely love it.
3: But you know what, Santosh? Our Wayback Machine operates not dissimilar from a Tesla, and that means in this cold, it's just not going (laughs) to let us head out quite as early. Uh, Okay. So as long as we're hanging around, why don't we also look into disease warfare that has been used or studies to protect against it and some of the wacky things that people have attempted over the years this is
2: definitely the the scary things that go on because when you are an epidemiologist and you're studying diseases and things you can use the knowledge you have to treat people who are suffering from diseases but unfortunately the same knowledge can be turned on its head uh, to be able to deploy highly contagious and scary diseases into a population for warfare and unfortunately josh the knowledge does cut both ways it's it's up to us to be responsible but you know these awful things are part of our history as well um very very regretfully
3: but before we do that (laughs) yeah let's take a break santosh
2: (laughs) give me a break Uh, come back soon
3: <laughs> and we're back. You so, us? biological <laughs> warfare research started during World War II, as the Army Chemical Warfare Service it had about four thousand workers, a budget of sixty million in World War II money, and it was then moved to the civilian Federal Security Agency. Which was the War Research Service, and you know who was placed in charge of that? The name may sound somewhat familiar. Okay, G- George W. Merck, president oh. of the pharmaceutical firm Merck and Company. <laughs>
2: okay, so way back when, before they were making you know any of the medications we associate with them today i'm guessing
3: through them he put together a report on the risks of what kinds of things the u.s could be under attack from and how it would be dispersed along with langmuir putting his bill nye the science terrorist videos out and (laughs) and came up with several plans for how to respond but here is where we have taken whatever was in that report which has been declassified and you can read it here's where we go from there one specific plan was to drop ammonium thiocyanate on rice producing areas near major japanese cities but before that could be developed or carried out the atomic bombs were dropped and they figured you know what i i don't think we need bio warfare anymore
2: (laughs) yeah i i think that's 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 enough type of a thing yeah
3: they were focused mostly on anthrax and botulism but Oh,
2: (laughs) Oh, by the way, for those folks, anthrax, of course, everybody knows. But for those who don't know, botulism, the the toxin is extremely toxic in very, you know, small, tiny amounts, which means even like grams of this stuff can poison thousands of people uh, if it's dispersed appropriately. So, yeah, it's not just like the, you know, stopping you from smiling like the Botox shots.
3: But the U.S. was not the only one investigating World War II biowarfare. And in many ways, Canada was a pioneer.
2: Oh, Canada. All right.
3: <laughs> Bet you didn't have that on your bingo card. So <laughs> okay. while Great Britain and the U.S. were working with anthrax and botulism, Canada was trying to develop a weapon with psittacosis.
2: Yes, the, the parrot disease.
3: They also produced most of the anthrax stockpiled, if not used, by the Allies in World War II.
2: Oh dear, <laughs> this is just, Josh. You're making me sad.
3: Here's where they start having fun.
2: Uh, okay.
3: Along with some of the other research, they were working with an entomologist to develop a different class of weaponry to create, perhaps, a colony of fleas for use in combination with murine typhus and plague and essentially use bug bombs.
2: Oh, okay. Gotcha.
3: And before (laughs) you think this sounds too ridiculous, they actually used bug warfare on a large scale during World War II.
2: You're kidding. (laughs) Unit
3: 731... Which was a terrible unit, and their biological warfare unit used plague infected fleas and flies covered with cholera to infect the Chinese population. And they developed a special kind of bomb for this, known as a Yagi bomb, that had two compartments, one with houseflies, and the other with a bacterial slurry that would coat the house flies prior to release.
2: All okay. So the the basically the bacteria would be stuck on a little like glop on top of the flies, and then the wherever the flies landed, if they landed on a human or something like that, then some of the glop would stuck on the skin and and you know spread the infection that way.
3: So they would drop these Yagi bombs from low flying airplanes, and nearly five hundred thousand Chinese died of disease from world war ii now how many of these were verifiably from these bombs is going to be tough to say um but quite a lot and again everyone was looking into bug warfare so following world war ii the united states much like operation paperclip where they snapped up nazi scientists they did collect a number of uh members discreetly from this previous biological warfare unit and started looking at some of the research and in the 1950s began a series of tests using entomological weapons uh we have 1954 operation big itch
2: (laughs) okay someone got paid to to create that little you know phrase right there (laughs) Your
3: tax dollars at work.
2: <laughs> Just imagine someone sitting there with a pen and pencil and furiously going over. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, the mission scratching. No, no. <laughs>
3: so, Operation. a.m. <laughs> Operation Big Itch. Was mm-hmm. designed to test munitions loaded with uninfected fleas, uh, Xenopsylla okay. cheopsis. Okay. The E fourteen bomb was designed to hold a hundred thousand fleas, and the E twenty three two hundred thousand. But the E twenty three failed miserably in the early tests when okay. uh, when one of the bombs glitched and some of the fleas escaped into the plane and bit all three members of the air crew. <laughs>
2: So, oh, oh, i'm i'm playing
3: oh I'm playing Benny Hill music, yakety sax yeah. in my
2: head.
3: <laughs> however, the smaller bomb, the e fourteen uh was successful, and the sh- the test showed that the fleas could survive the drop from an airplane and would rapidly attach themselves to hosts, uh, mostly because they would keep jumping and searching for a host actively. It was able to cover a battalion-sized target area and disrupt operations for up to one day. And that one-day limit is just due to the activity of the fleas, because after about 24 hours, they found a meal or they were dead.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) I'm guessing, you know, just being slung around like that, you know, they're not going to survive that kind of a drop through wind and cold and... That kind well, of thing. And, if yeah. you
3: drop a hundred thousand, then enough yeah. of them do to disrupt military operations for one day.
2: Oh, oh, okay. Uh, this this still feels like shenanigans.
3: <laughs> all right, all right. How about okay? Oper- how about Operation Big Buzz?
2: Okay, flies again or
3: no? Don't be ridiculous. Mosquitoes. Oh, sorry. Okay.
2: Oh. <laughs> Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. All
3: right. So, <laughs> so how this are you going to
2: deploy your Skeeters?
3: So this is the idea that munitions loaded with mosquitoes carrying yellow fever could be targeted at southern regions of the Soviet Union, because this is, of oh. course, the beginning of the Cold War.
2: Oh, I don't like this. This is really sounds bad.
3: They conducted early tests in June 1955 in Georgia, the state, Not the country, okay. (laughs) And it was designed to determine how feasible this was going to be. But during the test in Georgia, they were not infected. So you know, they just released a bunch of regular mosquitoes into the south.
2: Not, not at all a bad idea, I guess.
3: (laughs) So the second goal was to determine whether they, whether mosquitoes would survive and seek meals. So around 330,000 uninfected mosquitoes were dropped in the E-14 bombs. They learned their lesson.
2: (laughs) Way to go. Learning from previous mistakes.
3: And these mosquitoes were collected as far away as 2,000 feet or 610 meters from the release site. Human volunteers assessed the resulting bite rates and reported mosquitoes were able to find human hosts about half to three quarters of a mile downwind from the release site i can understand how you can track the wind but how do you know what is a bomb released mosquito versus just a local mosquito this is the kind of nitty-gritty statistical data i am impressed and bored to tears by
2: simultaneously (laughs) i'm guessing that they would have to have like their drop site would have to be fairly mosquito free, or at least to the point where you know, you wouldn't get a confounding bite from a rogue mosquito. Uh, you just want to track the ones that you have. That's the only thing I can think of because you can't like a mosquito bites a mosquito bite. You're not going to be able to tell if it's one of your dropped mosquitoes or a native. <laughs> I don't know but I'm still I'm a little sick to my stomach that that many mosquitoes were still dropped in the middle of Georgia I mean you know there there's humans living somewhere there and animals and mosquitoes kill people
3: <laughs> there's also an operation mayday which used bug like there were at least four or five different bug related disease dispersal systems and here's okay. some of the some of the qualities in all of these studies included flight range of the insects and you know, in case you were wondering, the maximum distance fleas migrate is around two hundred twenty yards, and a flea yep. uh-huh. can jump up to a foot at a time and can jump over six hundred times an hour when looking for a host.
2: Whoa <laughs> that's that's but that's one flea.
3: One flea. And if you're dispersing yeah. <laughs> You know, a hundred thousand of them. Now, mosquitoes, on the other hand, tend to migrate up mm-hmm. to one and a half
2: miles. Okay, so they're more effective vectors if you're considering them for warfare, which is still making me sad.
3: They're also more effective if you hit the ideal temperature range, because then a flea can transmit disease about fifteen days after feeding from a rodent, as opposed to shorter periods when the temperatures become extreme uh similarly oh what is the infective period fleas can infect throughout their lifespan but they don't transmit the disease to future generations so uh, the the weapon will only be as effective as the lifespan of that current f-
2: for the flea but not the, the skeeter Correct.
3: Uh, although it Got doesn't it. Okay. really say whether mosquitoes transmit diseases to their offspring, but just given the life cycle of most of the mosquito parasites, it's
2: right. not exactly. reasonable. Yeah, yeah. So a, a lot of those, you know, if you're talking about malaria, if you're talking about a, lo- a lot of the viruses like dengue, um, they do have to go through a, a host, a separate host that the mosquito bites circulate and then get picked up by another mosquito now if you if you (laughs) drop if you drop your mosquitoes and then you still have like an endemic uh, mosquito population those probably those endemic mosquitoes as long as they can support that pathogen they can do the spreading for you but now you've just like introduced a new disease into a place which didn't have that before which is Like, this is a wretched thing to do. This is horrible.
3: Of course, you want to know the transmission rate of the disease, because only about 60% of tropical fleas are capable of spreading disease after feeding. Other species have much lower transmission rates. So your bug selection is important. The the entomologist becomes a key figure in most of these plants. But I just thought... (laughs) I thought that look how important bugs have been to our public institutions.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So like we, we we talked about the helping and now we're talking about the hurting and just to be clear, Josh, using disease in warfare is an ancient tactic. So it's not like, you know, Oh my God, we created this kind of evil concept, you know, off the cuff in the 20th century. Um, You know, we had, you know, how to spread and utilize disease as far back as, I think, ancient times for war. But this is just more targeted and, you know, unless you do something stupid like spill fleas all over yourself, a lot more a lot more insidious because you aren't, for instance, like, you know, throwing plague-ridden bodies over a wall with a catapult. You're releasing some fleas, which may or may not be noticed until it's too late.
3: Till... I can't say recently, but until the slightly more recent years, Kadena Air Force Base in Japan, their medical center was used to grow medically important arthropods. uh, (laughs) Okay. To study the different strains that could be transmitting diseases, what they could carry, and how to treat it. So the information... The that at
2: least sounds cut. like, uh, you know, like helpful kind of a thing. I don't know.
3: <laughs> the information cuts both ways, and the cost per death, according to the report, for a vector-borne biological agent with a fifty percent mortality rate, in an attack on a city,
2: uh, if you drop this thing in enough numbers, you'll kill half the population.
3: Or you'll infect. Uh, achieving, in a 50- fact, yeah. Sorry. So ach- achieving a fifty percent mortality rate was twenty nine cents in nineteen seventy six dollars, about one dollar and one cent today. Oh. So a okay. a well designed and carefully chosen big itch or big buds could result in as many as six hundred and twenty five thousand deaths at a dollar apiece.
2: Oh dear. <laughs> Sadly, extremely efficient. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Okay. All of that is where we started from just treating malaria in our swampy borders.
2: (laughs) So we went out, we investigated how the malaria was attacking and the mosquitoes and how to prevent it and how to treat it. Take care of our soldiers and our citizenry. Created a program to help control malaria, eradicate it, and then talk about curing and following and diagnosing epidemiologically other diseases. And then someone used the knowledge for evil. <laughs> and we have, you know, this you know this kind of state of things post World War Two.
3: We're all just one Bond movie away. (laughs) But that's it for this week. Hopefully you had fun learning about the name changes of the CDC, the surprising ways that insects and disease changed the course of history, or at least war. And uh, we've given you something new to have nightmares about.
2: (laughs) I'll make a suggestion for a book because I I, I hope our listeners especially, but people should learn more and more about, you know, how vulnerable our civilizations are to just be like taken over by disease and and then vector-borne disease specifically. But yeah, check out Dr. Zinser. Uh, I think it was called Rats, Lice, and History, if I'm remembering it properly. So he was a doctor who studied typhus, but he also was a, a very good author um so he wrote that book and uh, there's lots of others but that one's one of my favorites
3: and that's why we need an epidemic intelligence service folks oh so, yeah. thus completes yeah. our secret history of the cdc as always We'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with some links for further reading. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, as always, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, a spin on your globe. And when you've done all those things, pick a country. that that doesn't have any kind of active infection at the moment. And uh, happy travels.
2: Bye, everybody.